if the resurrection isn't true, it should be. It's a great story, right? Like it's so compelling and it has so much potential to change everything about your life now and forever. And what's beautiful about that is you don't have to listen to me say that and say, okay, I wish I could like, I wish I could want that to be true enough to believe. Again, going back to our first question, it's not just a blind leap into the dark. Um, there's actual evidence that you can step into and weigh through what's the most reasonable conclusion about the life and death of Jesus. Welcome to The Search Podcast, where we have conversations about the big questions of God and life. I'm your host, Blaine Larson, and today I've got back here with me in the studio Josh Horton from Search Fort Worth. Josh, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast. Blaine, thank you for having me, man. I'm excited for our conversation today. Well, I am too, and we're this is the week of Easter, okay? So we're going to be talking about Easter, and the topic, uh, the way we're going to frame this is common misconceptions about the resurrection, because that's uh, what Easter is all about, the resurrection of Jesus. And so we've we've picked four that, that we feel are fairly common misconceptions about the resurrection. And uh, I feel like let's just dive right yeah. in and, uh, and start talking about them. So uh, first, uh, some people think that it, the, the resurrection is something you just have to take on blind faith, but there isn't any evidence. Is that something that you hear a lot when you're out working with people here in Fort Worth? Yeah, it is. And what's interesting about this, Blaine, this particular question is it isn't necessarily a negative or a positive comment. Like, I feel like I hear this from really a lot of different camps of people, whatever their stance is on if the resurrection actually took place. I mean, I hear people that would say, hey, I'm I'm a Bible, a church-going, Bible-believing person. I think the resurrection took place, and I just think it's something you have to believe with no evidence. And certainly I've heard from the other side of things that, hey, that's something that's good for you, but there's no evidence, therefore I can't believe that. And if I were to ever draw that conclusion, it would be because of some internal experience or just the desire for that to be true. But there's not really any evidence that can be had that could help someone draw that kind of conclusion. So it's kind of an interesting uh, misconception in my books because it seems like it happens across the board. It does, and what's really interesting, even about the way that you you put it there, is that um, for something to be true, like the resurrection, you might not know that you could believe it without evidence yeah. and be right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that, that's an interesting dynamic, right? There. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is an interesting thing, and you you could also have an if if our worldview is right, you could have a experience with God. I that's the whole point we think that's real and and not know any of the evidence either but base your uh your belief in Christianity on an experience and and you might not be wrong yeah even though you don't know the evidence but the real question is is there any evidence yeah and i think yeah it's a great great question i'll talk about a couple of things one piece that comes to mind for me when i think particularly on this idea of it's just got to be blind faith some of that comes because obviously when you think about the resurrection i think it'd be safe to say that falls in the category of a miracle, you know, something that's sure. not repeatable or testable um, in that sense. And so it seems that oftentimes it gets thrown to that category. So because of that, there can't be anything that could rationally help us get us to the place where we draw that conclusion, um, which again, I, I just want to point out because in the midst of this conversation and this podcast, Blaine, that you, you host weekly, it's so helpful is that there are a lot of episodes you have on this where you talk with people about this idea of miracles, because in some ways, that's kind of the starting question here is, 
is a miracle possible, uh, which I've heard it said countless times on some of these episodes that is really helpful for me that if there is a God, then acts of God would be possible. And, and it's really interesting to me. There's a quote from Anthony Flew, who was a uh, um, really 20th century uh, leading philosopher, atheist. Um, and I think this is from a debate he had uh, with Gary Habermas, where he said, certainly given some beliefs about God, the occurrence of the res- resurrection does become enormously more likely. So really just saying, hey, if there is a God, then all of a sudden, looking at the the details surrounding this, it seems really a lot more likely all of a sudden that that actually is a good explanation for him and for many others. The starting point that there is no God means then there is no resurrection. So no matter what evidence you show me, it's not an option. That That's right. be the case. And so there has to be an open door at that point. Otherwise, no matter what is put before you, you're going to be able to say that's just not that's not enough. There's got to be more because there are no such thing as miracles, which if you're not careful, could be a circular argument. And I think anyone pursuing truth would want to try to avoid those. Um, and so I think that's an important aspect. Um, and then to me, when I think about this idea, someone who's done incredible research on this is Gary Habermas. Um, and he kind of lays out the minimalist approach, which I really appreciate as I was thinking through this podcast because he lays out six different details that as he's researched and looked at all the different thinkers and writers um, in in kind of the critical era of trying to d- dissect whether or not the resurrection has any plausibility, um, the six things that he says, hey, you're, you're going to have a hard time finding anyone who would disagree with these six ideas. And so I thought I'd just kind of walk through them. Um, Jesus's death by crucifixion, the disciples experience that they concluded were appearances of the risen Jesus. Again, they're not saying these critical scholars, again, this is people in the camp of believing this to be true to agnostic and atheist skeptics across the board. But they're not saying that the disciples actually experienced the risen Jesus, but that they concluded that they had experienced the risen Jesus. Um, that the information in the Gospels was taught exceptionally early, sometimes within the first year. Some people believe in within the first year of the crucifixion. Uh, the disciples were transformed by these events, even to the point of being willing to die for the resurrection message. And lastly, two former unbelievers, James, the brother of Jesus, and Saul of Tarsus, the church persecutor that we know through the Counts and Acts, also more commonly known as Paul, who both became believers because they concluded that they too had witnessed the appearances of the risen Jesus. And what's interesting about those quotes, again, are those five, six minimal facts, is that these aren't necessarily... Uh, what Gary Habermas is saying are really fringe beliefs by people who are all in that want this to be true. These are things that historians across the board are saying from what we can know about anything in history. These are the things that we know must be true about the life of Jesus. And if we're going to say these things aren't true, we really have to question how and why we know anything about history. And so from that starting point, you can start to step back and say, okay, what are some of the possible explanations maybe natural explanations if you're going to say there is no such thing as God and it's got to be explained naturally. Um, and we have some great episodes uh, that you've done over the years with different people talking through really in detail, hour-long episodes, talking through all the possible scenarios and natural explanations and, and really giving people who are willing to listen and think about it their options to weigh through what could explain that away. Um, but that these six minimalist facts are kind of concrete ideas if you're going to take anything in history as something that we can know. Yeah, and that's a good point because often often when you when you have this kind of 
just uh, this question when it when it comes up, you have to wonder what kind of evidence would would be sufficient. What are we looking for? What could we even expect to have from two thousand years ago that would quote prove something happened? And uh, you know, I think about this a lot because uh, I asked somebody this question actually recently. It, what what would have to happen? And uh, they said they would uh, they'd have to see it or or see a video or a picture or something like that. Yeah, uh, that would that would prove it. And so, uh, I would, you know, I didn't I don't remember what I said, but I remember thinking we have the technology nowadays. You know about yeah. deep fakes. Yeah, for sure. These videos. You gotta start questioning videos you see. Yeah, things oh. that you're convinced. I watched it through the screen. Well, hold on, is that? Here's, I mean, those deep fakes are unsettling when you think about that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing. If it, if we had a video of Jesus alive post resurrection, uh, it doesn't seem like that would be enough now. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we may. Let's go maybe YouTube. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Everything's on YouTube. Yeah, but no. you see, you see my point. So, what yeah. kind of evidence could we have? Well, well, when we're looking at these minimal, these minimal facts, these are. These are taken um, from from historical writings, and yeah. and that's really what that's really all you have from yeah. from back then. There there isn't more, and it's the same that it's the same criteria that we use to look at other people from from history and their reality or or fiction, yeah. as it were. And we make the same kind of judgments uh, about Jesus. So um, I just wanted to throw that yeah no out there. That's a great point. We'll actually talk a little bit more in one of the later misconceptions about that very idea. So I think it's, it's well said. Um, and with that being put out there, it's one of the, the the ideas that I found really helpful. And I think for a listener to this podcast, maybe encouraging, I think it was Craig Hazen who said that, um, he, he I think it was a presentation turned into an article where he walks through five reasons that if someone's trying to figure out, is there a true world religion um, and trying to begin that investigation, he walks through five reasons that you should start with Christianity. And the first one is really fitting for this conversation because it's that it's a it's in a historical it's rooted in a historical event that if it didn't happen, you can throw that one out. If it did happen, then all of a sudden the implications and ramifications of that are really significant. That you begin to realize, well, maybe this is the true uh, world religion in the sense that it's an expression of God, His character, uh, who we are, why we're here, and, and what God has designed us for. Um, and so I think that's where it's really important to understand this common misconception that it's not just a leap into the dark. It's not just blind faith, not asking anyone to commit any form of intellectual suicide. This is really looking at the evidence and saying, and again, this is kind of what Gary Habermas has concluded are the the six major things. And again, it's interesting. I mean, you look there, one of the things that's not there is that the tomb was empty, right? He's really honest in some of those investigations. That's something where he doesn't quite meet the criteria of being an assumed fact across historical events that I think if you take these and start to walk through some of the implications, it's really helpful to begin that investigation. And again, just to point out, I'm not in any way trying to imply that because these six things are an assumed historical reality, that the resurrection took place. I think someone can investigate these things and draw a different conclusion than me, but it's not just a blind faith leap. It's not something that that is just something you have to think in order to be someone who follows Christ. I think it's something that we can test, we can step into, and we can come to a rational conclusion one way or another based on actually looking at historical realities. Yeah, and that's that's a great point. And 
I love the the quote from Dr. Hazen because what he's really trying to get at there is that Christianity's falsifiable because yeah. it is completely based on the resurrection, right? So if the resurrection didn't happen, you can you can just throw Christianity out, and and that's that's unique in world yeah. religions that there's this kind of simple singular. Um, What's the philosophical term? Defeater. Defeater. Yeah, 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 that's what yeah. I'm looking for. <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a defeater for yeah. Christianity, and they're, and they're actually, to my knowledge, is not a, a defeater for any other world religion yeah. that's like this. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on. I'm not aware of anything in any other uh, world religion like that. And as a matter of fact, um, I don't think we brought this up yet, but it actually comes up in, in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. where Paul actually talks through that idea that if this didn't happen— <laughs> Uh, the Christian followers are to be pitied. Like, this doesn't make any sense. This is a critical component of the Christian worldview and belief. Um, And and he goes on, and that we'll talk a little bit more about it uh, later, but he goes on to walk through the reality that uh, there's there's reasons to believe that happened as he's writing to the the church in Corinth um, in the same way that we look back now. And even though we don't have currently eyewitnesses, he's writing to people who had eyewitnesses, and he starts to reference some of those eyewitnesses, he references a crowd at a group up to 500 people at once that would have, many of which he acknowledges, some have passed away, but many of them are still alive and putting it out there to say, hey, there are other people that saw this. Uh, whereas when you look at other world religions, a lot of times those things come from people's experiences where they're alone in a cave or where they're in a, a moment where they had a divine, unique exposure to God that they are then telling other people about, but everyone's kind of got to take them at face value. Whereas this is a lot different. This is something that happened in time and history that there were eyewitnesses to, that there are uh, a handful of authors that wrote about in the aftermath of those events. Um, And so I think that's a really big distinguishment. And another figure that I think is really helpful for me uh, is Simon Greenleaf, who was a professor, I believe it was a professor at Harvard. Um, I know his books and writings were used in the Harvard Law School uh, in the 20th century, but he he was alive in the 19th or in the 20th century, and he uh, he was a person who took his legal expertise and applied it to the case for the resurrection, um, and came to the conclusion and solidified for him that this actually was a historical event. The resurrection took place, um, and the claims of Christianity are true. Now, in no way am I saying that that means that it is true because a really smart guy came to the conclusion it's true. Uh, that's not a really good rational way of thinking about it. But it is, I think, a really good case to be made that there are reasons to believe the resurrection took place. It's not a blind leap of faith. It is something that someone can come to the conclusion based off evidence. And Simon Greenleaf is a good example of someone who took his legal uh, expertise and applied it to the case for the resurrection and came to the conclusion that the most probable explanation is the resurrection actually took place. Yeah, I think – and I think that's a great way to wrap up this this section. We're, we're not saying um, that it's a slam dunk. Yeah, but but we are saying if you've written off the resurrection because it just seems fanciful or there's there's no reason, no rational person would think that. Uh, take another look. There there really are some reasons to think that that this happened. And, and I think to go back to what we started with in this, I would say if you're listening to this and you're someone who would say, "Hey, I believe these things to be true, but I've never really thought through why." I think it's also a great experiment for you to step into and say, "Okay, what are the reasons behind this?" And I think you'll find it really encouraging. And, uh, and hopefully uh, validating to what you've come to the conclusion of before. Great point. So let's move on to second uh, the second common misconception about 
the resurrection, and that's that it's a powerful story, but it's not yeah. it's not critical. It's not it's not central. And I remember when I was actually thinking through all of all of these questions. This was this was basically the question that I had. Yeah, uh, I framed it a little different, but I remember being in a meeting up uh, in an office in Music Row. With a guy from Search way back then, uh, his name was Bill too, but not Bill Craftson because I wasn't here in Fort Worth. But anyway, I remember staying after, and I just had a question, which was, I I understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus is central to Christianity. What I don't get is why. Mm. You know, it seems like a very strange thing to base your religion on. Yeah. So uh, I resonate with with this misconception of of the resurrection as we're calling them here. It's a powerful story, but it's not it's not critical. It's not what's the big deal? Yeah, and in some ways, I think it it goes back to a concept that a lot of people have that Jesus was this great moral teacher that he had these great thoughts or ideas. It's kind of hard to argue that Jesus didn't impact the world that we live in today in some pretty deep ways. And so it's almost like well, the crucifixion is just a, a sad reality. But it demonstrated Jesus's faithfulness. It demonstrated Jesus's character and his care for people. And it shows love and sacrifice and all of those virtues that we like. And so it's almost just a good ending, a sad ending, but a powerful ending and a great picture of sacrificial love. And, and then we kind of want to move on from that and don't want to unpack all the implications. And it's funny, I had a conversation with a guy a couple of years ago, an old friend of mine, and we were catching up and talking through different things. And I was sharing with him some of the things I was learning and and he he made a comment to me that really resonated where he said, I'm I'm gonna be honest. I he'd grown up in the church. He said, I don't, I don't think I ever realized that Jesus had to die for a reason. I always thought it was a really strange, kind of like you were saying, kind of a really strange series of events that I had to believe. Like I just had to believe that happened. And heaven forbid, I I doubt that he really existed. Um, and as long as I believe those historical events happened, I'm good to go. And, and it was in the context of us talking about this, the idea of sin and the nature of sin and how destructive it is and that uh, the cost of sin is actually death and forever separation from God and God being loving and just had to do something about it, which is really the powerful, radical, scandalous, honestly, nature of the Christian message is that God actually stepped into this world in the person of Jesus, paid our debt that we deserve to pay, that should be ours. And went about it in a way that ultimately put on display that sin is it's done. It's sting to use biblical language is no longer there. And if we're willing to turn from our our view of ourselves that we're good enough on our own, that we can figure this out on our own, and really willing to lay that before him, put our trust in what Jesus has done for us, we can actually have a forever right relationship with him in this life and in the life to come. And what's interesting to me about that and why I think this is an important misconception is I think that's one of the biggest distinguishing factors from Christianity to any other world religion, that every other world religion is going to have a message and a motif of what can you do to be right with God? What can you do to satisfy the wrath of the gods or to make God look at you the right way? Whereas the Christian message actually flips that upside down and says, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. That's actually how broken we are. And yet God in his love for us has done something so radical that really flipped history upside down, if it were true that he came to the world and the person of Jesus died in our place and the resurrection in, in some ways, it's a broken metaphor, but in some ways kind of showed that the, the check cleared, 
that he really was who he claimed to be, his message was true and validated, and that after this life, there is a resurrection for anyone who would believe and put their trust in Christ. And so it's it's radically significant, which is what Paul, I think, gets at here. Uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. <laughs> kind of saying, hey, if if this didn't happen, no problem was solved. Like It's just a good story to tell that doesn't really have bearing on reality unless it was real, happened in history, and actually took place. Yeah, so it's a related misconception that we weren't really planning on talking about, okay? But I think it falls under this category, and it's I can be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great, great point because in some ways probably from a a breakdown of what would actually make someone a quote unquote Christian in some ways. That I'm a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home, or I'm a Christian because I've gone to church hopefully enough, or I read the Bible a couple of times, or whatever it might be, some form of actions that we do. And really that's the radical kind of uncomfortable nature of the biblical message that there's nothing we can do. And really, in some ways, I know for me personally, if I'm having a conversation with someone and we're talking about this and they don't necessarily kind of turn their head a little bit, like, wait, what are you saying? Like, I I don't have to do anything. Like, it's all been done for me. Um, If that's not an uncomfortable notion, I I don't know if it's really connected with what, what the biblical message is. In some ways, yeah, you're you're completely right, and it's it's also the the thought that it's almost by default. Sometimes people define themselves by what they're not, right? Mm. So I'm a Christian, yeah. quote quote unquote, in somebody's mind because I'm not pick one of the other religions, yeah. And, yeah. or because I'm in America and yeah. I think there's a God, but I'm not one of the other religions, so I'm I'm a Christian. Um, that's a Pretty popular. We talk with people all the time, yeah. and uh, and you might be listening to this and go, "Oh, it sounds like me," <laughs> which yeah. I'm glad you're listening. Yeah, uh, because because the resurrection is is that important to to Christianity that you actually can't be a Christian and not yeah. believe that this event happened. That that is how central it is. Yeah, and I, you know, a term that I think is really apt for that that fits really well is. A cultural Christian, and mm-hmm. meaning that I I am that because my culture around me has always been that, and so it just kind of is what I self identify as. I think you're spot on. I think if someone's listening to this and they'd say, "Hey, I I think that's the camp I'm in." I think the beautiful thing about the Christian message and the beautiful thing about the resurrection on on this Easter week is that there's a reality you can step back and say, "Okay, is there really a reason for me to potentially hold to these convictions?" Um, or is it just simply because I was born in this place and um, I guess I'll self-identify as that, but I don't really want to investigate it any deeper. And I think there's something beautiful about digging deeper into that. And I think it opens up the beauty of God's hope for each person listening to this, if this is any of this is true. So couldn't have said it better myself. Great job. Well, let's move on, all right? Our our third common misconception. About the resurrection, couldn't it have all just been a giant conspiracy? Boy, yeah. So this one is one that— uh, This is going to be popular too, man, because, you know, conspiracies are— Oh, They're so, all the rage right now. <laughs> so my wife will—I I hope she listens to this when I'm on it. Who knows? Maybe not. But if she does—actually, um, Blaine, I'm sorry. She listens to this every week. Uh, um, no. I, hopefully, if she listens to this, she'll laugh at this. Um, but I love—I love— I love uh, ancient aliens on the History Channel. 
Love it. I don't know, you know if you've ever seen it. People are listening to this, I know. Right? I'm willing to own it. It is so fascinating and entertaining. I am a, <laughs> on so many fronts, I'm a sucker for a good conspiracy theory. Um, I love the idea of it. I really do. And and what I found when it comes to the conspiracy theories, when ancient aliens is just, just a fun example, is uh, there's a reality that sometimes conspiracy theories make a lot of sense until you apply some common sense. They do. I mean, they, they make a lot of, like, if you watch an Ancient Aliens, it's really fascinating that the arguments they make, the dots they connect, uh, or any conspiracy theory that you dive into, and then you start to think a little bit more about it, maybe ask a couple reasonable questions, and then all of a sudden, you kind of have to step back and say, now, hold on a second. I don't think that makes really any sense. Um, and I love, I was listening earlier to the podcast episode, uh, I think it was a couple years ago, with you and Joel Householder. Uh, where y'all talk through some of the uh, popular myths around the idea that this was actually just uh, stolen from various world religions. And I actually remember, I think it's Bill Maher, Irreligious, is a a Mm -hmm. movie that he made. I remember watching that, and I was in graduate school at the time, and I remember being really shaken by, oh my gosh, like this, he is making such a compelling case for this. And I didn't know any of these things, and I was really unsettled. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to, at the time I was a student at a seminary and I, I went to a professor and said, Hey, like, this is not, this is not looking good. Did you know about these things? And honestly, I, and not in a condescending way, but he just kind of laughed and said, Hey, if I was going to try to disprove any of this, I wouldn't even think ever about starting with any of the things he brings up in that. Like those things are so misrepresented on so many ways. So he challenged me to look at different documents to read the original sources, which you and Joel dive into in that episode and you start to realize, okay, hold on a second. That doesn't really add up nearly as well as I would like it to. Yeah, and and so what do uh, what do people want? I mean, what's the what would be the most? So let's say it is. Let's just have fun with this. Yeah, the resurrection's a giant conspiracy. Yeah. What's the why? <laughs> what's the why motive? would it? Yeah, yeah. No, I think there's there's a lot of different, um, a lot of different. So one popular thing that I think pushed this out a little bit more was some of Dan Brown's famous uh, books and I guess movie, The Da Vinci Code, became a movie. Uh, and, you know, there, there's always able to tie it back to different historical events or supposed historical events where certain people kind of created the narrative of who Jesus was and that happened at the Council of Nicaea and these different things. Um, the problem was that those things are fiction. They're, they're you know, they're stories um, that are written to kind of solicit and reaction. And when you actually dig deeper into them, there's not really anything there, which I think the question you're asking is great because I think for there to be a conspiracy, there's got to be some level of motives. And uh, I think when you actually get back to the original resurrection, which is what we're talking about here, uh, you start to realize that the most common, uh, I think it's Jay Warner Wallace who talks about this, that for every crime, there's three motives, right? Uh, You know, sex, money, and power. Uh, And not that the I guess you could say the conspiracy of the resurrection would be a crime, so to speak, in the sense of every every action in that sense of trying to pull one over on people. You, you got to have one of those motives. And when you start to step back and look at the early church and you look at the disciples, they were a despondent, discouraged group of people. And, and you look at those minimal facts we started with, the reality is there, there's really no debating that the early disciples had an experience that caused them to go from despondent to willing to die for what they claim that they saw. And again, it's important distinguishment, not willing to die for something that they thought was true, for a conspiracy to be true in this nature, they would be willing to die for something they knew to be a lie, which is radically different 
than anyone we know today who's willing to die for something that we find out later ultimately isn't true. Now, some people who are listening, though, they might say, okay, if power is one of the motivator motivators for a conspiracy, for a crime, quote unquote, uh, man, religion yeah. is one of the great power sources in the world. Like that's why people hate religion because it – Puts people under other people's authority and mm. it's a way to control the opiate of the masses, right? Yeah. So maybe that's why they – and maybe these guys were super smart and it was a long-term power play. Yes, and it would – if that is true, there was a long-term power play that never worked out for any of them, uh, which is one part of it. And I think when you look at what we know about the early church, um, if there was a power play for them – that power play, play was done by giving up power and constantly, radically loving the culture around them, loving people around them, so much so that we have certain documents written by different uh, – I'm trying to think of the Roman – I think it was a Roman governor that talks about how these Christians keep caring for our people <laughs> better than we care for our people. And that's one of the biggest problems we have with them is that they seem to love people better than we could. Why, why are they doing this? And so – I think that would probably be, to me, looking at the current reality and projecting that back on that time period where it seems like, again, from a conspiracy standpoint, they're, if they were going for power, they never seemed to actually grab for it, if that makes sense. It does. It makes a whole lot of sense. You might remember a guy – well, you don't – neither one of us remember him. We know of him, Chuck Colson. Yeah. OK? Yeah. But some people listening might remember him. He's uh, passed away now, but Chuck was uh, – he went to jail for his role mm. in Watergate yeah. uh, back in the Nixon administration. He was a central player there. Uh, he later became a Christian. He wrote a lot about um, his experience and – his thought about Jesus' resurrection and so on and so forth. But uh, I want to read you a quote that I think is awesome that, that Chuck Colson wrote. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful mm. men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me the 12 <laughs> apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Yeah, and I love that that quote because that's a guy who lived that out. He lived out an attempt at a modern-day conspiracy and fall, saw it all fall apart so quickly. Uh, and again, we see some of the the motivators there for you know sex, money, power. Um, two of, two of those three certainly there in that story. And and I think uh, I mentioned earlier Jay Warner Wallace, who was a cold cold case detective on the West Coast, who's done a lot of work in trying to apply those principles to particularly the case for the resurrection. Um, and he has a lot of work that he's done about the idea of a conspiracy theory because he actually dealt with a lot of conspiracy theories um, in that time in his role. And he gives these three major uh, factors for a good conspiracy. Small number of conspirators. He says preferably one. Um, he, he makes kind of the jab at if there are two, the best way to go about it is kill the second after you both attest to it and then there's just one. So uh, the small number of conspirators, thorough and quick communication, um, and a short time span for the conspiracy to live, and particularly for there to be a large number of people that could maybe, you know, 
rat each other out, similar to the Watergate scandal. And I think when you start to apply those principles to what we can historically know about the disciples, about the early church, about what Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 15, about the number of witnesses to the resurrected Jesus, you start to see this thing starts to blow up in some certain ways that if it were something that were easy to say, hey, that never happened, <laughs> that was never an experience that never took place. Um, again, the disciples don't think they saw that. They all recanted. All those things would be re- it'd be very highly likely that you would hear about that, and that would be something that would show up, but it doesn't show up. And so it seems like, again, if you're going to look at this, going back to our first point of evidence, and you're actually going to take those minimal facts, again, not minimal facts that all the people who believe this agree on. These are facts that historians agree on. You have to start looking at what's the most reasonable explanation. Um, and this, I think, is a tricky point, especially when we think through, I want to do an honest investigation. Are you looking for all the possibilities or are you looking for what's most reasonable? Because there, there are a lot of possibilities. Uh, in prepping for this, I, I heard a few new uh, explanations that I found fascinating. My favorite one is the twin of Jesus who shows up on the uh, on the eve of the crucifixion and is advantageous, makes the most. Uh, I, th- I think one theory I heard was that he came from India. I don't remember. It, it was pretty convoluted. But there are a lot of possible answers, right? Uh, Jesus as an alien, uh, a lot of different examples that they're out there as, as people trying to argue that these are possible. And to answer the question, are they possible? Yeah, sure. That, it's all possible. Uh, but is well, it be the most in the matrix? Yeah, yeah. This this could be a simulation. But is that the most probable explanation? And on some level, we have to live in responding to the most probable. And then going back to that idea that if you know you look at Anthony Flew quote, if you're going to start with the beginning point that there are no such thing as miracles that couldn't happen, um, so therefore any evidence that points to that being the most reasonable conclusion can't be true. And so I think that's an important distinguishment there. It is. It is. And it's, it's well said. It's very well said. And uh, I've, I've heard of the twin one, mm-hmm. and I've actually had somebody tell me about the alien, alien one. Mm-hmm. I've, had, I've sat with somebody who espoused yeah. uh, that, that view, and, and they're, they're out there. And, and um, I think this guy actually got it from the History Channel too. I think there was something on the history. Probably channel ancient aliens. I, I bet it's ancient aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, you talk about aliens, though. I mean, yeah. with Chuck Colson's quote, apparently there's no aliens because yeah. there's, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah, it but, would be a bummer. We'll see. <laughs> nobody can keep that a secret. Time will tell. So, all right. Well, hold on. Uh, yeah, I guess we can move on to the next one. I had one thing I wanted to share. Well, let's move on to the next one. I'll see if it if comes it back comes to me. back up. Uh, come, come, uh, tell me. So, all right. Our uh, fourth misconception about the resurrection. If it really happened, why don't we have more extra biblical accounts? Come on, Josh, wouldn't wouldn't there just be all yeah. kinds of books written about this? Yeah, no, I think this is a really good question, and there are a lot of layers to it that I know for me personally, as I was thinking through this common misconception, I found a lot of things that were helpful for me that were, were really new to me. Uh, the first thing I would highlight, though, that I think is really important. Actually, I'll, I'll say a couple things. Uh, one is it's really easy to approach this question with what you could maybe call chronological snobbery, to look at the ancient world and to say, well, this is how they should have done it, could have done it, would have done it, because this is how we do it today. Yeah, sure, we know they didn't have computers, they didn't have smartphones, but it's still really easy for us to apply some of the ways we would go about documenting history and to not understand how uncommon it would be to write large links of uh writings to put together books for the average person that was experiencing things to try to capture these moments 
And not only would that have been uncommon, but to even think through, and maybe a large assumption would be that there's a lot of documentation about a lot of other historical figures that are really famous that made a big impact on the world, but we just don't have that for Jesus. And what I've come to realize is that that, that really isn't the reality that we live in. Um, when you look at, at literature in the antiquities during the time of Jesus, um, what I've come to understand and to see is that we, <laughs> we actually know far more about what we don't know. Like we know about more documents that we don't have anymore than the documents that we have. And we know about those documents because the few that we actually have reference a lot of other documents that they got their information from or contemporaries of them. And, and that's true for documents that, are, that reference the person of Jesus and the rise of the early church. And so I think that's a really important aspect to, to capture there. Um, to me, one of the interesting things as I was digging through this um, is that when you take away the biblical, uh, the gospels and the early, early church writings, I think you see, um, you see that I think it was Jesus had nine extra biblical secular authors reference him in the 150 years following his life. Um, now, for some, that might be like, wow, again, that's if you take out the Bible, which we'll get to in a second. But you might say, wow, that is, that's not very much. That kind of feels alarming to me that it's only nine. Um, and I found this really fascinating that, uh, and again, the question could be, well, if Jesus was so impactful, why didn't more people reference him? Um, for Julius Caesar, in the aftermath of all of his wars and all of his accomplishments, um, there are only five sources that mention his military accomplishments in antiquities, one of which was written by him. So there's only four remaining that aren't written by him that talk about the impact of the Gallic Wars. And so that, to me, when you look at that, that that's an interesting reality. The emperor, uh, Tiberius um, Caesar, who was the emperor during the time of Jesus, uh, if you count all the sources that reference him, uh, there are 10 that reference him in the 150 years following his life. And that's including the Gospel of Luke, which obviously, uh, if we can't count that for Jesus, we probably shouldn't count that uh, for him as well. And so <laughs> if you take that out, then both him and Jesus ha both have nine um, documents that reference them from a historical standpoint. And so I think when you step back and look at that, there's a level that uh, it's actually kind of shocking how much information we have for this kind of out in the Far East Jewish teacher who seemed to be a miracle worker, seemed to do some crazy things, and some events happened around his death that seemed to change the city of Jerusalem and change the course of history. It actually adds up how much we have about him from that time period. Well, something had to happen, right? I mean, something did happen because we're still talking about him and the church is still going. But when he when he died and was resurrected, correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say he had maybe a hundred followers. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't this huge movement during his lifetime and immediately uh, after the resurrection. Um, it became that pretty pretty quick, I guess, uh, in Jerusalem in the you know month or so after the resurrection. But point is, um, he was he was not somebody who had built a large uh, platform, let's use a modern yeah. word, and, and, ha and you know, he, he had about 100 people yeah. running, running with him, which is, is not a lot. And then we've got a lot of information for him considering. Yeah, and, and not a lot prior to his death, mm -hmm. which, again, you go back to the minimal facts, we can say happened. And so either a really unique thing in history happened from those 100 people, a massive movement took place in the midst of being despondent and discouraged, 
Because when you look at other, we haven't really talked as much about this, but when you look at other religious leaders throughout history that seem to gather a following that in the aftermath of their death, their religion seemed to grow, um, they were massive movements at that point, uh, some of which were the result of almost global conquest, that that then continued to grow and, and take root. Whereas when you look at the person of Jesus, at that critical moment, if he just died and stayed dead, so to speak, um, it doesn't really make sense that what happened would have happened in the aftermath. Um, and again, that's not to make that a point to say that, therefore, it happened, but something, to your point, something happened that seems to be unique in history. And if you go to those minimal facts and you try to step into, okay, what's the best explanation? Um, I think if you haven't done that before, Again, wherever you land on the spectrum of, of how you view Jesus, I think that is an incredibly fruitful experience to try to process what's the best explanation for, to use Gary Habermas's uh, wording there, the minimal facts. Yeah, and even going back to the, the question, why don't we have more extra-biblical accounts? I know you said that there are references we know about them, but I would take it a step further and say we, we might have them uh, in the sense that we are still finding— oh, yeah documents from this time period yeah from the first couple centuries of of uh, after Jesus and and even in the last few centuries current to us now yeah. that's when we found the bulk of the manuscripts uh for some the, of the for most the New important Testament. ones yeah the Dead Sea Scrolls I know y'all talked about a couple times on this podcast yeah yeah it's... but even there there was a lot of I mean there was biblical books and there was all kinds of other uh yeah. just uh, books that, that were written so um the world's a big place. Yeah. We're finding more and more, and and it is very possible that at some point in the future there are more of these extra biblical books and writings that reference Jesus that we know about that we might actually find copies of, yeah. uh, especially over in Europe and around the Mediterranean in these monasteries. Uh, there are library. we know about them. There's yeah. libraries full of papyri and, and and writings that we do not ha- – nobody's had access to. We yeah. know of things that are just sitting there and nobody knows what's there. Yeah, and and I think the biggest takeaway from that is if, if someone's trying to think about, especially this week, the resurrection, and that question comes up or that thought comes up, uh, I'd actually flip it on its head and say it's actually extraordinary the amount of extra-biblical documentation we have of the life of Jesus in contrast to other historical figures – um, that are on the ranks of emperors and global conquerors. So it's a pretty interesting reality when you think about it that way. It it really is. So I've I've got to ask you now. Uh, last last question of of the podcast. So we've talked about the importance of the resurrection. We have talked about some of the common misconceptions about it. Um, I love the conversation. Somebody might be listening to this and go, "Okay, so what." Right, like, what does it really matter to me if if this happened? And so I'd I'd love for you at the end here to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, wow, that's a great question. Um, man, this we referenced earlier, First Corinthians fifteen, and Paul talks through this reality that if the resurrection happened, then all of a sudden everything Jesus said about himself makes sense. Uh, that he was the person of God stepped into the world who met us where we were, came into our world in the brokenness of the world, uh, did something for us that we could never do for ourselves, expressed love in an incredible way through sacrifice. Um, If the resurrection happened, then that means that God has the power to give us life, eternal life. 
Uh, it means that we can have a right standing relationship with God. It means all the promises of the Bible um, all of a sudden make sense. <laughs> a light, so to speak, is shown on all those promises that, that we can cling to, that we can hope to. It means that this life isn't all there is. It means that uh, there is a God that will one day work all things together, ultimately where we will have a forever experience where there is no no more pain, no more suffering. Uh, there is perfect relationship between us and God, between each other. Uh, I mean, I, it just it feels like you go on and on, all the implications. And some of that, I would imagine, if you're listening to this, sounds far-fetched and sounds like wishful thinking. It sounds like just something that is too good to be true. Um, and I understand that. I think I maybe even referenced this earlier. I've heard it said before that if the resurrection isn't true, it should be. It's a great story, right? Like it's so compelling and it has so much potential to change everything about your life now and forever. And what's beautiful about that is you don't have to listen to me say that and say, okay, I wish I could like, I wish I could want that to be true enough to believe. Again, going back to our first question, it's not just a blind leap into the dark. Um, there's actual evidence that you can step into and weigh through what's the most reasonable conclusion about the life and death of Jesus. Was there something on the other side or was there nothing? And if there was something, it changes everything about life. Great wrap up. Great, great wrap up. That's one of the most important questions that you can find an answer to. So Josh, thank you so much for Thanks being for my guest. Me. Always a pleasure to have you. And thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening to The Search Podcast. If you haven't already, please go leave us a rating or a review anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.